Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I absolutely have the pleasure. I know I say that all the time, but this time is really special for me. I'd like to welcome Mitch Lowe to the show today. He is the CEO of MoviePass. Formerly, Mitch served as the president of Redbox and was a co-founding executive of Netflix, where he helped build one of the most disruptive businesses in the history of entertainment. Mitch was one of the early pioneers in the movie rental industry, opening video rental stores in the early 80s, building a chain of stores in Northern California, and he tried to launch VHS video rental kiosks as well as a subscription-based website provider back then. In the late 90s, Mitch joined Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings at Netflix, where he was VP of Business Development and Strategic Alliances during its first five years until he left Netflix in 2003 after a successful, very successful IPO. He then joined the business development team at McDonald's Ventures to build a DVD evening machine business called Redbox. He served as its COO and president for eight years, growing the company from $36,000 in its first year of revenue to over $1.5 billion in revenue eight years later. He left late 2011 and began investing in startups in various spaces. And I couldn't be more thrilled to have Mitch on the show today. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you, Tiffany. That's very kind. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to have you, but we'll get into that in a second. But before we jump in, I have to start with the infamous or famous, depending on who you're speaking to, bullish and bearish. Bullish is that you're for something. Bearish is if you're against it. Three quick questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The first one, happy employees equals happy customers. Uh, bullish. Ah, I'd hope so. You know, I've been saying that a lot lately and people kind of give me this. Yeah. Okay. I get it. <laughs> But all right, we'll, we'll go with bullish. My, my only right. hesitation was that it's obviously more than just happy employees makes happy customers. But yes, as a start, I'd say bullish. Okay, great. And good. I'm looking forward to, to digging more into that. All right. The second one is um, watching movies is experience a renaissance, is experiencing a renaissance. Uh, bearish. I'm, okay, I'm going to ask you about that when we finish our third one, all right? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, the third one, a little more fun. The Middle Ages was the best period in history. Uh, total bearish. Oh! Uh, although I would have loved to have been there. <laughs> all right. All right, well, let's let's dig into a couple of those bullish and bearishes. Let, let's start okay. with the watching movies as experiencing a renaissance, and you were bearish. What, what, was, the, what was the genesis <clears throat> of that answer? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, we see this in in lots of uh, uh, ways we live and lots of trends these days. But our attention span just can't handle a two hour movie much longer. And you know, you see the you know, it's kind of weird uh, uh, because we want highly developed characters and we want to fall in love with the stories and and follow people, but we can't kind of dedicate two hours. Now we can dedicate two hours in 30 minute segments or maybe one hour segments, but I think the attention span and our, our ability to focus is, is kind of reducing the interest in, in two hour movies. Well, interesting. You'd say that, right? Because recently out came the Irishman, which was, you know, almost four. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. 
And right, how many could have been. how many how many sittings did it take to watch it? Yeah, it well, there was all the statistics, uh, you know, from Netflix uh, mm-hmm. on um, you know how long people actually watched, you know, mm-hmm. and then to your point, how many sittings was it in? So interesting mm-hmm. that it's the two hour mark. And so, do you think shorter form movies are going to become more popular? You know, that kind of quick mm-hmm. burst of entertainment. <clears throat> Well, yeah, I think I think um, I think we even saw uh, Snapchat uh, recently releasing five minute uh, detective series episodes. So, yes, I do think I do think we'll get um, kind of bite sized chunks of entertainment. Uh, I think more and more people are watching YouTube clips uh, today than are watching movies and especially young people. So I think there will be. You know, there'll still be long stories. I think the real, the real exciting area are series where you have, you know, multiple episodes, you know, multiple years, and you can really develop a story and characters and, and people fall in love with them and just want to know more and more about them, as opposed to a two hour movie, which maybe two years later has a sequel, or, you know, I I think that's where, where the, the, the interest is dying and, you know, slowly but surely for, you know, single one-off two-hour movies. Even though, you know, when I say that, I absolutely love, you know, stories that are two hours long. I love some, you know, some of the great movies that are even three hours long. But but I do think the the overall trend is uh, short-form content, uh, content, but, you know, linked together in a series. Yeah, and I think the binge watching is also getting more popular, right? You sort of just sit mm-hmm. down and go, I'm going to binge watch a whole season of something. And and what's funny, <laughs> right, as you say, two hours, yet you'll binge watch eight hours of the same oh, show. Oh, my God. Yeah, I I uh, I was uh, flying to Australia, and I got there at about 11 o'clock at night. I was supposed to meet people the next morning. I started watching an Australian uh uh, uh, series uh, called Wanted uh, about two women trying to bring down the mob. And about five hours later, I realized, oh my God, it's like four in the morning. Um, and they were half hour episodes. So yeah, you can really get caught up in it. Uh, but there is, of course, a downside to to binge watching. And, you know, the worst part is, is that we no longer have, uh, you know, much of an idea of a cliffhanger uh, and no kind of uh, uh, water cooler conversation that builds up interest in a in a series because you can't talk about it because you don't know whether I've seen four episodes or the whole series. So who shot JR is a thing of the past. <laughs> exactly. I think Breaking <laughs> Bad did a great job on AMC by, you know, releasing it once a week. Uh, the Vikings, you know, on on the History Channel is doing that now and it it gets people to talk about it and, you know, build interest and excitement. Uh, but there's a, there's room for both. Well, so, you know, that, that is uh, I think that's a interesting sort of take from someone like you, right. Who has been in this video entertainment industry now for some 30 years. If you go back mm-hmm. to when you first started having video rental stores in, in Northern Cal, but yeah. step, maybe you could step, step the listeners through, you know, how do you, you were really early in some of the concepts. And I often talk about this. Not only did I talk about it in my book, Growth IQ, but I talk about it when I'm on stage that mm-hmm. I felt like the timing of Netflix um, and and knowing that you had tried to do things in the 80s, even before that, 
had everything to do, or in my opinion, anyway, I'd love yours, it is had everything to do with the timing in which you did it based on what we had as consumers and had access to, right? If you were trying to mm-hmm. stream in the 80s and we didn't have access to high-speed bandwidth, it wouldn't mm-hmm. work, right? Mm-hmm. So exactly. um, step through sort of when you're, re- you know, you were really early, why you didn't hang on, why the timing was right from a Netflix perspective. Well, you know, this. I think this is... Uh, really one of the the parts of the success of Netflix is the sequencing of of what took priority and what innovation to launch uh, in what series was was critical. So you know back in ninety uh, eight, you know, when the company was formed, uh, you know, there was, if you remember back, there wasn't even pictures on the internet. You know, there was they were just barely evolving out of the green text that was on the screen. And and yet, you know, uh, the company was called Netflix, not uh, the other choice was movies by mail. And and instead, there was this vision that eventually there would be a way to stream and uh, or download. At that point, you know, they no one knew and no one knew whether the studios would accept one one way or another. In fact, at that time, studios thought any kind of internet use of their content was going to just lead to incredible piracy. So I think it was, you know, first focus on learning how to distribute content, you know, to millions of people. And that was the only way to do was DVD. And, and really the brilliance, you know, of Mark and Reed was, you know, that a DVD, you know, could be mailed with a first class postage stamp if, if you took it out of the case. And of course, little did we know that uh, first class mail gets uh, put through a big roller that practically bends the DVD in half. Uh, and that was a whole nother, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any, I don't know if there are any pictures of, of the test lab testing how just how much you could bend the DVD. Uh, but I think that was the brilliance is, you know, Mark and Reed and the rest of our executive team, you know, took it kind of one step at a time. What is the absolute most important uh, innovation that we have to do now that will lead ultimately to a speedy delivery of content, you know, which which streaming, of course, is the, and, and by speedy, I mean, um, speedy from the time you decide you want to watch something to the point in time you can consume it. You know, in the DVD by mail days, it was anywhere from one to three days. And and the focus was constantly, how do you shorten that period of time? Uh, I think that was, that was uh, you know, one of the brilliant uh, kind of concepts of how to, how to walk that through to the future. Yeah, and I think there's two things there. And I love the fact that you use the word sequence. It made, made, I wish you could have seen my face when you said it, because yeah. uh, in the book, I said there's three things that make uh, companies successful. One is sort of the growth path that they choose. Um, the combination of things that they do. And the third is the sequence in which they do it. So yeah. I couldn't be more yeah. thrilled that you said that exact term. <laughs> I like, I, I like was beaming. So that was, uh, that was great. But when I, I when think. I talk about Netflix, I do it on two sides of the coin. One, I say it really honed in on the job to be done, right? The job was, I want to mm-hmm. entertain myself or my family over the weekend or whatever it is. And I want to remove that friction, right? Quote unquote, as mm-hmm. easy as buying a book kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you say part of the friction was I have to drive to a store, I have to pick it. I hope they have it. Not only do I hope they have it, I hope when I get home, it's the right one because sometimes you get loaded, you know, with the wrong mm-hmm. thing. And 
early yep. on in the blockbuster days, they would only get so many copies of new releases. And so you'd rush mm -hmm. there to get it. And then the other pain was obviously the late fees. And so right. yours was just, how do yeah. I make the job to be done of getting entertainment in the hands of a consumer, a less mm -hmm. frictioned experience? Then it yeah. was, how do, how do I, then the next job is how do I, what you just said, right? From the moment you decide to the moment you can start watching it, shortening that time frame. Mm -hmm, exactly, and and uh, you know the if, if, if sometimes it seems like um, ancient history, but the but the two you know most impactful uh, friction points in the old uh, video rental system was uh, the late fees uh, and the uh, lack of availability. You know whether it was title selection or depth of copy and uh, and that was really you know what we would focus on originally or in the very beginning is god we love documentaries we love foreign films and very few video stores carried a big selection so how can we i remember uh i signed a deal to get 800 uh indian titles uh from india and uh you know they just you know were incredibly popular because there was no other place uh, to get them. And so, you know, both selection and, you know, depth was a little bit harder because it was still a physical medium. Uh, and then eliminating the late fees. Uh, that was, those two things, uh, you know, were really the key features that were enabled Netflix to build a huge uh, subscriber base, customer base. That was real, you know, eliminating those two friction points allowed Netflix to take the next step, which was building a big enough user base to really learn, you know, what the future, you know, might might be and to test and experiment with things like downloading and streaming. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, people would be surprised. And I don't know what the exact number is now, but when I was doing the research for the book, it was like 800, 850,000 customers in the U.S. still do mail order. My mom's one of them. Mm -hmm. She still gets Netflix via mail. Whenever I say that on stage, people are shocked. Like, yeah. It's highly profitable, right? I mean, it's yeah. a way to invest in the future and, and fund, you know, a portion of the original content, which is now mm -hmm. sort of the differentiating factor. But yeah. Um, I think it still does a half a billion dollars uh, in revenue. And yeah, nothing to shake a stick at, right? No, no. And you're right. It's incredibly profitable. There's no longer the need to have, you know, warehouses, you know, 50 warehouses all over the country. So it gets, uh, you know, people are willing to wait. You know, the plus side is you get movies sometimes faster, uh, you know, release on DVD than you do uh, streaming. Oh, well, that's, that's even a, you know, a better reason. I'm sure that's not mm -hmm. why my mom does it, but <laughs> she does it because she's like, I don't even know what streaming is. I'm like, that's okay. Like, well, you know, will you know, continue to work. I don't know if you know this, but Redbox, you know, still does $2 billion a year in DVD rentals. And, you know, you ask people, ask your friends if they have a DVD player and I bet you won't find one. Uh, it's just amazing. Then there's another group of households. Give me what I want, when I want, how I want. And I'll pay for it. That's kind of the Netflix customer, the person that has, you know, lots of other services as well. And then there is the, and that's roughly 40, 45 million households. Then there's another group of households that's equally as big, uh, 40, 45 million households that doesn't have the capacity to go up and down in their spending for entertainment. They are on it is typically families with kids. This is they're on fixed budgets. 
and they're just looking for the cheapest way that they can get a reasonable amount of entertainment. And what I saw when I started working for McDonald's is that, you know, there's a lot of people uh, that are in that group and a lot of people that streaming or, you know, uh, uh, putting your credit card on account with a company for a subscription just didn't make sense. Every month they struggled to pay the bills. And so, you know, we started figuring out like, so what does that customer want? Well, that customer doesn't want to necessarily have to make a second stop to go into a video store. They want a simple, easy way to understand what it's going to cost. And, and that's, you know, we, we tested all these different ideas, 99 cents a night, $2.79 for three days. And we found for that customer demographic, when we made it a dollar a night, every, oh, it's three days, it's three bucks. It's five days, it's five bucks. It's one day, it's one buck. But basically I start, you know, when I think about these things, I really just come from a customer need. You know, what, are, what need is out there that's not being served? And, and I think all, you know, good disrupting businesses you know, do the same thing. They many times have a personal need. You know, there's something that companies aren't doing for them. Uh, and, the, and they say, well, I'll solve it by founding, you know, a startup or figuring out a way to change the way my company uh, does business. And so I know you work with a lot of companies now and advising and a lot of your speaking around this sort of leading and organizing companies to be able to handle this kind of disruption and innovation. And when we were talking earlier in the bullish and bearish about employees equals happy customers, you're like, well, it's one of the things. And I totally agree, mm -hmm. right? Going back to my combination, it's never just one thing. It's mm -hmm. that, but if you don't have happy employees and everything else is humming along that, then I think that you've got a problem. If you have happy employees and everything else isn't humming along, I, I, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, I, I think that it's, you have to have both, but maybe you can step through how people who are listening and go, look, you know, I'm constantly being challenged to come up with some innovative, new disruptive idea that I can bring mm -hmm. to the table. You mm -hmm. know, what would be the process for them, you know, to sort of mm -hmm. walk away on Monday morning and go, or over the weekend, you know, like, let me think differently about how I approach this, uh, considering mm -hmm. you've, you've kind of mastered this. Yeah, yeah, I get asked this a lot and and it's and it's really simple, you know, if you're if you're someone starting a new company, it's really just, you know, solving something that bugs you about, you know, how you buy something or how a service is. But if you're working, you know, for a larger company, it's essentially getting kind of, you know, your hands dirty by getting really deep into process and and not accepting anything for the way it's being done now. Uh, you know, I mean, just almost any business uh, requires too much paperwork or too many, too many forms to fill out, whether they're online or offline, too many steps to buy the product, too many steps to understand the product. So it's really, you know, try to put your feed in the shoes of the customer, whether it's another department, you know, or uh, a customer and use the product, you know, like, just like the customer pay for it, have to call customer service, you know, and, and so that's one thing. The second is I always think a great thing to do is to go sit in the customer service department 
every once in a while uh, and just listen and not necessarily, you know, take calls or respond to emails or do the chat yourself, but just listen to what you're hearing because it's almost like a magnifier for what's wrong with your product or service. You know, not everything is, is actionable, but, but it's, you'll definitely hear things. Uh, data is important, but, you know, having all the analytics and data, if you don't understand how your customers, and, and like I said, it's not just, you know, retail customers or wholesale customers, it's other departments within your company. Um, you know, really try, to, if you understand how they want to use the product and what they find, you know, wrong with it, or what they would fix if they were honest, um, you know, if you have the data and not the understanding, then the data is useless because you won't know which data, you know, is, is worth looking at. Um, you know, one last thing, one last thing that I've just been amazed at how often it leads me to an innovation is, is talking to a young person in the organization who maybe it's their first job. And they haven't learned to be politically correct and, you know, not just spout out stuff. Uh, I find that young people, when it's their first job, have kind of a more open mind and, and are, are kind of more willing to tell you what, what is wrong. And, uh, you know, so I think, I think, you know, if, you, if you're going to work uh, tomorrow, you know, try to do those three things and, and you know, the the thing that's not working is the thing that needs to be innovated. And it's only really called disruption uh, when someone else didn't do it, when your competitor, you know, missed. I mean, what you want to do is, is innovate either within your company or a new company and disrupt somebody else. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things you said there that I'm a huge fan of. One, it's kind of this a la Tom Peters. He says management by wandering around, right? Mm -hmm. Get out of your office, walk around, uh, you know, meet with people, talk to them, listen to them, hear them, mm -hmm. you know, and especially your front lines. And the second mm -hmm. thing I often say is if you really want to know the temperature of your customers, listen in at the call center of customer service, because yeah. you're going to find those pain points of friction that could be very easily solved by you not mm -hmm. by the person who's answering the phone because they don't have the authority power or they may not even be enabled you know mm -hmm. to do it and yeah. so hearing it directly from your customers because uh you know i have been in positions where um i used to work for gartner group and you know i'd sit in front of executives and be like look the sky is blue and the executive across the table for me would go oh my goodness the sky is blue and the person sitting <laughs> next to me is like i've been telling him the sky is blue for like six months right, right. but because i'm an outsider Right. Uh -huh. The sky is blue. All of a sudden is this big aha light bulb moment. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so customers can be that light bulb moment. Uh, and, and for me, you know, I, I think that undercover boss is a wonderful psychology yeah. experiment of leadership <laughs> because, Definitely. you know, they spend all this time putting makeup on their face. And I always laugh because I'm like, look, you could walk through your stores today. No one would recognize you anyway. Exactly. You never <laughs> leave your true. office. Right? Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you an interesting story. Uh, I always, I, I always love this um, uh, because it's, it, it isn't as, e it, it's not as easy as just walking around. Uh, so here's an example in, um, in the early 2000s, uh, McDonald's for the first time was having declining year over year sales in their history. You know, they had grown every single quarter, uh, you know, since the fifties or forties, whenever it started. 
and they were struggling. Like, what's going on? You know, is it is it all these other competitors coming into the market? You know exactly what it is, and what is it? And McDonald's executives are probably the best at getting out into the field and walking through their restaurants. You know, sitting there outside and timing how long it takes to go through the drive-through, or or tasting the food, or walking through the restaurant and checking for its cleanliness. But they couldn't figure it out, so they tried all these tactics. One of them, of course, was investing in Redbox, trying to get DVD machines to increase frequency of traffic. You'd smell the burgers and fries, and when you came to return the DVD and buy something, which actually did work. And they tried all these other things, healthy choice menu, um, all these things. And they found, and two or three years went by, and someone, one of the executives, finally went into the bathrooms. They had visited the restaurants hundreds and thousands of times, but never gone into the bathroom. And what they saw was atrocious. What, what had happened when McDonald's started attracting young adult males with all their sports commercials, uh, young adult males started coming to the restaurant and trashing the bathrooms. And the frequency of cleaning wasn't keeping up with it. And all their original customers, who were moms with young children, stopped bringing their kids to a restaurant with dirty bathrooms. And had they done a complete walkthrough and gone through the bathrooms, they would have seen that they needed to increase the frequency of cleaning. They started, when they found that out, they started increasing the frequency and McDonald's came roaring back. And it was just that one little thing that even though they had the practice of visiting the restaurants that they just didn't see, they kind of shortcut. So that's why, you know, when I say you have to use the product like a customer, you know, Reed always told us this at, at Netflix, we would always say, why don't we get this for free? We're employees. Shouldn't we, you know, shouldn't we get special accounts, VIP accounts? And he said, no, you have to, you have to pay for it. You have to experience it just like a customer. So when you have a problem, it's probably the same uh, problem a customer has. Yeah. And the story I used in, in Growth IQ, my book on McDonald's was listening to customers. One thing on McDonald's was the customers had been asking mm -hmm. for breakfast all day for a long mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. wouldn't do it. Um, and, the, and once after they had come out of that growth stall that you just described, they hit another growth stall, you know, and for another mm -hmm. decade sort of couldn't sort of figure it out. And, you know, they were the first really to start to reinvest at, in breakfast, but there was a lot of things going back to our sequence comment earlier that they had to do before they could launch all day breakfast. They had to change the format of the kitchens, add another grill. Yep. You can't do eggs mm -hmm. and hamburgers at the same time, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they had to get yep. all the franchisees to agree and then all day breakfast and boom, they hit a growth spurt. And now you see the biggest competition between uh fast food, if you will, in air quotes, is at the breakfast time, that breakfast yep. menu going all day and everyone's pushing into that. So that's a great, another great example of uh, your example of, you know, walking the walk and, and, you know, visiting and then noticing that the bathroom was an issue. That's that mm -hmm. kind of undercover boss, like get out there and see it. And then yep. the flip side is the really listening to your customers saying, you know, we want, we want breakfast all day. Mm -hmm. Right. Not say, I mean, you never should say no, you know, if, the minute a customer, you know, it is is like one of thousands that's asking for something and you just say, no, that's not our business, you know, have a really good reason uh, for that. 
uh, not that not that that shouldn't be done from time to time, but uh, you know you really have to think seriously when you say no, we can't do that. Yeah, agree. Well, let me let me just sort of tie this all off because I know that you have been involved in companies that have had hyper growth, exceptionally hyper growth, like mm-hmm. on you know as fast as fast as it can be. And you've also experienced growth and then a stall and growth again. And, you know, and, and I think when, when businesses talk about growth and all the things we've just been describing of trying to remain competitive around disruption and innovating and, you know, cleaning the bathrooms and introducing breakfast and going to streaming and all of that, I think one of the most fundamental questions many companies and groups and individuals forget to ask is, all growth isn't good growth. What does growth mean to you as a business? Mm-hmm. And well, maybe mm-hmm. you could could unpack that a little bit for us. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely, um, not what it's cracked up to be, uh, you know, growth, growth is great once you're ready for it. And, and oftentimes we, uh, at least, you know, in my past, I've experienced both, you know, products that I can't get anybody to buy and products that too many people want, and products that weren't ready for prime time, and products that just took forever, you know, and finally got to prime time. So, I think the the key is it, the the key to all of this is managing growth in such a way that is 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 right with you know the 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 product being ready your ability to be ready, uh, the format of your organization, uh, you know, so many things. What I wouldn't do and what, you know, I have done wrong in the past is believe that all growth is good and and that, um, you know, my team and myself could keep up with with that growth. It really is a more serious uh, issue of, of managing that growth. Could not agree more. (laughs) I almost feel like we are just connected in this brainwave on this very topic. It's been great. Like, well, you know, I want to just thank you for spending time with us today. I mean, I think that you have, you know, led some of the most uh, talked about companies in disruption, especially in the entertainment industry. And I've so appreciated your insights and input. And so, you know, for those listeners, how can they keep in touch with with what you're doing, Mitch? Any place that they can go? Uh, <laughs> there's not, you know, I'm not uh, too big on social media uh, right now, but uh, I do uh, speak around the country and around the world, and uh, you know, at various conferences and and uh, uh, companies, and you know, try to try to excite people about you know their their own future and and their job, but. Uh, you know, I have a I have a website, you know, MitchLow.com, uh, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the future. But uh, you know, not too out there in the social media today. Well, that's okay. We are just blessed to have had you join us today on the What's Next podcast. So, Mitch, thank you so much for spending the time with us, and I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you. Thank you. It's great talking to you. What an amazing conversation. It's such an honor to have somebody on the What's Next podcast who 
whose company I covered in my book, Growth IQ, because it allows me to see was I directionally correct in the things that I said. And I couldn't have been more thrilled that he brought up the entire concept of sort of the order and sequence in which you do things, which I'm really passionate about. But I hope you enjoyed this conversation as well as the tips around how to become more innovative and disruptive in your own organizations, as well as some of the things you can do Monday morning walking around, listening to your customers, going and seeing your facilities and speaking with your people, especially on the front lines to hear what ideas they have to remove friction, not only from their day-to-day, but also from your customers. Thank you for listening in to this episode of the What's Next podcast. My name is Tiffany Bova. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave some feedback, and I'll look forward to having you join me again next time.